I'm Jeff Cohen. At one time in her life, Kelsey Osgood considered herself an atheist. Through a dangerous health situation, she changed her view on religion, so much so that she converted to Orthodox Judaism. Kelsey is also a well-known writer with a book in the works about millennial women and religious conversion. There's a lot to cover here, so let's get started. Kelsey, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So I tried an introduction to uh, tease all the interesting and unique things about you that we're going to get to, but let's start from the beginning of your story and give our listeners a sense of where your story begins. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Connecticut, in the suburbs of New York City, so you know, southern Connecticut, Fairfield County. I was born in the mid-80s, so I'm an 80s, 90s kid. Mm-hmm. Where I grew up, is it's a very stereotypically waspy suburb. It's a lot of tennis and golf. People tend to vacation in Nantucket. There's a lot of polo shirts. It's a very socioeconomically and ethnically homogenous place. I was not a fan of it when I was younger, but looking back, you know, now as an adult and as a parent, I see there are certain sort of charms. It's very stable, a nice place to raise children and to be a child, really. And how would you describe your family in those early years from a religious perspective? My family was then and still is now what you might call like secular American Christian. We celebrated Christmas and Easter purely from a gift-giving perspective perspective or like that was our, you know, minhog. My parents, I think, would probably describe themselves as somewhere in the atheist agnostic belief system. But that was not something that was really ever discussed. We did go to church once or twice on Christmas. I went to a church preschool, more for the preschool than the church, you know, the way that sometimes preschools are inside of religious institutions, but are not like overtly religious themselves. Religion wasn't a topic of polite discussion. That was, I think, something that was particular to the environment and the time. It was a sort of certain things that you just don't really talk about in nice waspy suburbs in the 80s and 90s, and religion is one of them, certainly politics and money probably as well. So that was the milieu. And how did you feel about religion? Like you're doing a nice job of painting the picture of what your family was creating, what your what your parents believed. Like how did you feel about what you were participating in at that young age? I remember that I was very interested in religion from a what you might call an academic perspective. It feels weird to use the word academic when talking about a little kid, but I was very interested in the larger world. I thought where I was from was boring. The fact that there were so many different ways of being and believing in the world were really fascinating to me. When I was really little, before the age of eight, my family babysitter was an Irish Catholic. Now, the extent to which she was Catholic is really hard to tease out because Irish Catholic is a lot like Judaism for some people who are culturally Jewish. You know, like they're so enmeshed that I'm not sure that she really was like a religious person. It was just like, well, I'm Catholic and or I'm Irish and I just should go to mass. So I would go to mass a lot when I was a little kid with her. And this was something that I, I don't remember this, but I'm told that I found really like moving and I was really into it. So that had a big influence on me. On the other hand, my mom's father, so my maternal grandfather was very outspoken. He called himself an agnostic, but I never actually heard him argue for like the maybe there is a God side. He he only argued in the atheist direction. He was very outspoken about it. And he was a very self-identified intelligent man. And it was clear to me even at a young age that 
he associated being intelligent with being not religious, that if you are religious, then that means certain things about you that I think a lot of people actually believe, that it means that you're not smart or that you need extra sort of emotional support and that makes you kind of a weak person. And he was a very misanthropic guy, but he really liked me. And it was clear that he really liked me because he thought that I was also smart. And I, as a young, like I wanted to sort of live up to this idea of myself as not smart. So I remember also feeling, well, if I'm smart and being smart means like not being religious, then that's like what you should aspire to. There's some sort of like eyes wide open thing about that moving through the world without these illusions. So those were sort of the big religious influences on me. In terms of like my nuclear family and like the town where I lived, there were times where, because I was a sort of existentially oriented child, I remember having a lot of issues like on Christmas, feeling like, oh, okay, we're opening all these gifts, but like, why? What, what are we doing here? What does this mean, you know? And feeling that there was a gap between the few times that we would go to church on Christmas, sort of being like, what is this? We're just having this like knee-jerk traditional experience and then going and opening gifts that these things don't seem to have anything to do with one another. But I don't think I thought all that much about the lack of religiosity in my immediate environment. What I did think a lot about was the lack of existential inquiry in my immediate environment. That was a very pressing concern to me that started when I was little and then kind of got more pronounced as I got older. Why isn't anybody thinking or talking about how strange it is that we're all just walking around on the planet and we have no idea what we're doing here. And <laughs> we're supposed to just kind of pretend like this isn't the weirdest thing ever. You know, that occupied a lot of time for me <laughs> when I was young. And I used this word in the introduction, atheist, and you've been talking about these existential questions. So where does this leave you as you get to ages 9, 10, 11, kind of, and approaching those middle school years, like your outlook on the world, on religion, like where are you holding at that point? When I was eight, I had a kind of like opposite road to Damascus moment where I was, I remember this very clearly, I was walking to my best friend's house, she lived next door to me, and I was looking around and I was like, you know what, God must not exist. It does not make sense. You can't see him, you can't hear him. How are we all supposed to believe in something that we have no proof of? We don't see miraculous things in our everyday life. It must be a ploy on the part of adults to make children behave well. I had a a lot of conspiracies about school too. Like they just, they wanna keep us (laughs) in a building and like make up these rules and make us do these silly things just so that like we're going to conform to their expectations or something, you know, it was like very Marxist. So I had this moment where, okay, I'm not gonna believe in God anymore. It doesn't make sense. I'm out, I'm done. Not that they're, was like a lot of pressure from my environment. Nobody was telling me you have to believe in God. Nobody was saying you have to go to church. There was a very dramatic moment. I don't remember this either, but I'm told where my childhood babysitter took me to a mass where a lot of kids my age were getting their first communion. And I made a, I, I, in the middle of it, I said, we have to leave right now. I guess there was, must've been something happening where I recognized that I was the same age as these children and I wasn't doing this thing. And therefore I was like kind of an interloper in this space. I guess I must have been very insistent because we'd left. So yeah, so that was the moment then at eight, I was like, that's it. I don't believe in God anymore. And I was very vocal about this with my peers. Again, not that I had like a ton of very religious friends. My two closest friends were Catholic, but 
not in any way that I could discern had an effect on their daily life, if that makes sense. Like, I think they went to church, but I never heard about it. But I told all my friends, I don't believe in God anymore. God is silly. You shouldn't believe in God either. And <laughs> it was probably very obnoxious. I maintained that belief. We'll get to it, but basically for up until my early 20s. But um, I would say from like 8 to 13, when I look back on it now, I see a sort of gradual withering away of the spirit, I guess, to use a kind of corny word. Like there was something about living as a free agent in a world without moral order that I thought was going to be really liberating that just ended up being really sad. I have to say, by the way, that everything you just described sounds like a realization somebody would come to in college. And the fact that everything you just said happened around age eight is kind of remarkable, don't you think? I mean, I always say, like, I have really bad timing in a lot of ways. I just think that it was, like, kind of bad luck that I had this experience. And then when I was 21, 22... Then I started to be like, well, maybe there is a God. Right at the time when everybody else that I knew was like, well, you know, throwing off the shackles of whatever childhood belief that they had. And, you know, I mean, sometimes I wish I could just do things in a normal order. (laughs) Other people do them, but too bad. I don't think it's going to (laughs) happen. So I also mentioned at the beginning of the interview that there was a health situation that played into the teen years. So can we delve into that a little bit and how that sort of connects to what was going on with you in terms of being an atheist? Sure. So I started developing disordered eating habits around 13. 15 was the first time that I was like officially hospitalized for anorexia. And that happened four times over the course of five years. And it was a little different than some other people who struggle with anorexia or bulimia or any sort of other disordered eating habits where I I was fairly aware of what I was doing. I knew that I felt lost in my life and I felt like I wanted something that was going to give me a structure really and like a purpose. I didn't feel like I had a purpose. And I guess I also felt like a little lonely because I didn't feel like anybody else that I knew really struggled with that idea. Everybody just seemed like they were living their lives and that was fine and they didn't really think beyond that. So uh, I was cognizant of the fact that I was going to experiment with these like extreme eating patterns because I wanted to have some sort of identity and have some sort of purpose and I wanted to be really close to the edge of death because I thought that that was how you understood more about what it meant to be alive. I'm not the first person to make comparisons between anorexia and religion. There, It's very easy to talk about the similarities there. You know, there's like a lot of ritual involved, a lot of sort of moral inventory or, you know, an inventory of how well you're doing. There's this sense of this overarching purpose. There's a structure to your day and to your life overall. There's like a lot of, you know, martyrdom ideas and these ideas about being like, I'm so special because I have this thing that I can do, but also a lot of like self-negation. So in some ways it was an effective replacement, but it was also obviously a terribly ineffective replacement because it's a terrible way to live and it, you know, is essentially a slow suicide. And I think like eventually 
I had a pretty profound moment of, oh, I don't actually want to die. Like I, for many years, I thought that, you know, I, I must want that if that's the way that I was behaving. And then I kind of, you know, had this moment where I realized I actually really didn't want that deep down. And um, that was sort of what kickstarted me moving in the other direction. And also like opening up the idea of, of a God, of realizing that actually there is an order to the universe and the order to the universe is that human beings shouldn't destroy themselves. I'm glad, by the way, that you, you took the time to explain the connection in your mind between religion and anorexia. Because I think a lot of our listeners would say they're two totally different topics, but the way you describe it of someone who's looking for something to believe in, structure, rules, a purpose, an identity, like you start to understand that is how a lot of people find their way to religion. But for you, it's how you kind of found your way to anorexia. So I'm starting to understand the connection a lot better. I would think your parents are also obviously like really worried. Like how are they involved? Are they trying to get you therapy? Like what are the different things they're trying to do to help you through this? I'm not sure how deep I want to go into this. I will say that I got a lot of treatment over the course of 10 years therapy, hospitalization, psychiatric wards, and in medical hospitals when there were physical symptoms that needed to be addressed in that way, nutritional therapy, things like that. They were obviously extremely worried. My dad is a pretty like reserved person in a lot of ways. We didn't have like in-depth discussions about it that I can recall. My mom is a little more outspoken. I think that she had some frustrations with the way that treatment was structured and the certain sort of things that were done, which now as an adult, I share. At the time, I did not. But now I feel that there are certain sort of ways that the treatment system is organized that I don't think are actually correct. And some of the things that she said to me when I was a teenager, which of course was like, when you're a teenager, the last person in the world you want to listen to is your mom. But now as an adult, I'm like, oh, she was actually totally right about that. We don't talk about it all that much even now, not because of any sort of issue of repression, but just because this is a really long time in my past. You know, I'm 39. It's been almost half my life since I was last hospitalized. But um, I'm sure it was a really horrible experience for them. And I understand the situation comes to a head in one of your therapy sessions. That's kind of where it starts to turn a corner. Can you share what, what happened? I was 20 and I was in college. I went to college in Manhattan and... I had a therapist who was actually a convert to Christianity. She was like a quirky woman and it really worked for me because she, most therapists don't talk to you about their own lives. She, she didn't overdo it, but she told me a little bit and including about her religious belief. There was one day where now this is, I'm leading, we're leading up to like the fourth time that I ended up being hospitalized. I'm 20. A lot of the sheen of anorexia, the like, especially in the 90s, it was the moral panic of the day. It was what everybody was, you know, like, the girls are all eating disordered, you know? And I was like, I'm 20 years old. I'm almost, I'm an adult, basically. I've been doing this for many years. I'm bored and I'm like sad and my life is not nice. It used to be this thing where, oh, you can imagine yourself as the protagonist of a Lifetime movie, but like, it's not like that. It's really dull. I was sitting around and I was thinking hard to myself and I was thinking that, if I'm behaving this way, then I actually must not want to get better. Because if I did, then I would not behave this way. I've had lots of opportunities to change it. I have a lot of resources at my disposal and there, it, nothing is changing. So 
what that must mean is that the, actually the honest thing for me to do would be to like quit therapy and just tell everybody this is the way it's going to be and it's dishonest for me to waste everybody's time and money pretending otherwise. So obviously there was a part of me that sort of recognized that like that meant that I was going to, I wasn't going to die in the next week, but I was probably going to live like a shorter, worse life than I or anybody else had envisioned for me. This was before I went to therapy and there was a part of me that, well, now I sort of recognize this as like maybe a kind of divine intervention. This deep down part said like, no, that's wrong. That's a really wrong thing. The other thing I should note is at the time I was in college and I was studying a lot of like postmodern thought and a lot of like avant-garde drama. And it was all about like sort of your own truth and the creation of the self as character and, and moral relativity. So I really felt like who's to say that if we're all just artists creating our own lives and passing moral judgment is incorrect, who's really to say that my choice to live in this way, which I am now thinking of as being very forthright, like I'm finally being clear with everybody, who's to say that that's worse than any other way of living? I thought this was a very well-constructed argument. Outside of that little nagging doubt that I had felt viscerally almost, I was like, well, intellectually, this holds up. So I'm going to go to my therapist's office and I'm going to tell her, here's what I've figured out. So like, it's been great. Thanks so much. But like, we're not going to see each other again. So I like go in and of course she argues with me and we go back and forth. And she says, I mean, like, we're not doing the morally relativist thing here. And I, I really think this reaction was formed by her own religious belief. You can't just kill yourself. You're not allowed to do that. It's not right. Why is it not right? And I wonder a lot about us now, kids who are in therapy now, where we live in an even more your own truth time, how you do that with somebody, how you say like, nope, sorry, you're wrong, that you're not allowed to do it. And at the end of the appointment, she said, how about you try for one more week? And then if, if you're not able to increase your intake a little bit, then I'll drive you up to the hospital. And I said to her like, well, what am I going to do? What do I do with this? And she just said like, I'll pray for you. I know a lot of people might find that response really annoying, but I actually found it really, she was telling me that it wasn't in her control. And I think that I had really been looking to her and these other treatment care providers to step in and make decisions for me and tell me what the right thing was to do. But she was sort of acknowledging like, it's not in my power to do that. It's in someone else's hands. I didn't walk out of there thinking like, well, now I believe in God. But that was the moment where things started to shift. And then with that same therapist, maybe it was like a year later when I was health-wise much better, I made some comment of like, well, you know, not that I believe in God or anything. And then I was like, wait a second, I do believe in God. And she was like, yeah, you're like, as if like, you just realized this, like, of course you do. I've been listening to you for like two years. I know that you do. And I was like, oh, wow. And at that point, then that started off a number of years of, I guess you could call it like religio curious, <laughs> like where <laughs> I was like open to the idea of God or believed in God, but didn't have like a particular faith tradition. So the million dollar question, given that this is Saturday to Shabbos and that you're going to end up as an Orthodox Jew is the way you're telling the story. And it's like really powerful in terms of what's going on with you health wise. And now you've opened the door to religion but it's a non-Jew telling another non-Jew, I'll pray for you. It's two non-Jews discussing a belief in God. 
So where in all this does Judaism now come into the picture? Is it something about the way you just said you're starting to explore and think about religion? You just said this phrase like you're curious about religion. So how does it make this leap over to Judaism? There were a couple of strands here. I had met some Jewish friends in college and in treatment, actually. And this is going to sound a little ignorant, but I don't think that before 18 or 19 years old, I even realized that there was such a thing as a religious Jew. I knew some Jews in Connecticut, but their Judaism didn't really seem to impact their day-to-day living. I went to one bar mitzvah when I was 13, and that was it. I, I didn't see the way that they lived when they were in the cafeteria at school or in sports or whatever as being any different than the way that anybody else lived. When I went to college, I went to Columbia, and there's a sizable observant population. I don't want to say orthodox. There's like a spectrum of observance there. And there were a lot of Jewish kids in one hospital in particular where I was. And I was like, who are these people and what are they doing? And they all kind of seem to know each other. And <laughs> one of my friends in college studied abroad in Israel. So I went to visit her and was really smitten with Jerusalem in particular. She was in Tel Aviv. It was clear that the highlight of the trip was supposed to be Tel Aviv. But for me, like Jerusalem was just magical and intoxicating and all that great stuff. So that kind of began the part of the story. It's like a little embarrassing where I was fascinated by orthodoxy and I was always, then I started to notice visibly orthodox people on the subway and start to look at what is it that they're reading and feeling very interested in orthodoxy in particular. But I don't know what to do with that. You know, like I'm the my cultural background is not to go places where you're not invited, right? Like you don't just walk in places. And I didn't, I didn't think he, I even understood that like it was possible to convert to Judaism or to anything. I, I was very sort of unaware of this stuff. But a few years go by where I'm doing this kind of like low grade spy work. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in Florida for a little while and I was like near the Orthodox, sort of near the Orthodox community. And I was dating someone and we were walking by a open door. And I don't know if it was on Shabbos or a different day, but there were men davening inside. And the man that I was dating said, I said something to him like, oh, they're praying because he didn't know what was happening. I said, well, they're praying. He might've said something about there being only men. And he said, what would happen if you just like ran in there and like cause some havoc? I don't remember exactly what it was. And I said, I would never do that. And that was this moment where I realized, oh, like the eight-year-old me that used to taunt my friends about how they had been baptized is, is gone. Like that person is gone. The person who thought of religion as something that like you should be allowed to mock, like that person is dead. So when I was 26, I met my now husband. My now husband, at the time my boyfriend, grew up reform in a very involved reform family. He went to synagogue every Friday night and you know, in a typical reform tradition, but in his case, it's really not shorthand for apathetic. They're very engaged reform Jews. When we started dating, I started taking more of an interest in like, oh, okay, maybe this is gonna be something that's gonna be part of my actual life. And so I'm gonna do a little bit of learning. That's when things shifted from an interest that was like more sociological to one that's more personal. I was going to ask you, the fact that you're starting to investigate Judaism and you kind of describe yourself as a mini detective, did that have something to do with why you started dating a Jewish person? Like, was that becoming important to you or it just happened that someone that you felt a connection with also happened to be Jewish? 
Frankly, I think it just happened. I don't think I was upset about it. I think I was excited on multiple reasons. I mean, you'd have to ask him, but I, I think now looking back on it, it was pretty clear that we were going to end up together early on. The way that we actually met was through a mutual friend from Connecticut. And I think I was excited. It gave me an excuse, really. There were two things that happened at the same time. First, I started dating somebody who was Jewish, which is actually kind of a double-edged sword, though, if you're interested in Judaism, particularly if you're interested in observant Judaism. That can be problematic for various reasons. But it did make me feel like now I have like a reason that makes sense to the outside world as to why I would think that this thing is interesting. The other thing that happened is I started publishing. And so then I started like pitching stories that were about like Jewish topics. And then I felt like I had this other excuse. Well, I can just go trail these. I wrote like a, a, an early piece that I wrote was about Ezra's Nashim, which is the um, all women's equivalent of Hatzalah, the ambulance service. I think they're mostly in Brooklyn still. So I pitched a story that meant that I was like, schlepping down to Borough Park multiple times a week, wearing like skirts and following these women around. And I felt like I was allowed to go into these spaces and to see these people's lives because I had this reason to be there. In terms of my partner, you know, he had always expressed to me that he was interested in becoming more observant than he was as a child. But I think that his ambitions... I know that his ambitions kind of topped out at conservative. <laughs> like there was no part of him that I can recall that ever was like, yes, like I'm going to keep Shabbos and I'm going to have a kosher kitchen. Like that wasn't in the cards. There was no idea that I would have to convert to be a part of their family or to be part of their Jewish life. You know, um, they would have considered that a breach of their ideals, which is the patrilineal conversion is fine. So these grandchildren would be Jewish to them. It just took me a while to realize like they actually wouldn't be Jewish to me. So that would be a problem. And it just became clear over time that it was something that I wanted to participate in more fully than I felt that path would have offered. I mean, I never really was seriously considering it, if I'm being honest. I, I never thought I would do a reform conversion. I toyed with the idea of doing a conservative one, but for multiple reasons, decided not to do that either. <laughs> so the way you're telling the story, and I've done enough of these interviews where you could see that the wife either wouldn't convert or would do a reform or conservative conversion because it's easier, and now you just kind of say, okay, the mother and father are both Jewish. So your story is going to go in a very different direction by the fact that you now are going to go all in on Orthodox Judaism. So how does it accelerate to that point? And what does this mean for your husband who, or husband-to-be who's on this reform, wanting to grow maybe the conservative path about where you're going to ultimately meet as a couple? I don't want to say that I'm like an all-or-nothing person. That's not actually the case. I'm not actually a perfectionist. <laughs> But there was something to me that really, the, one of the things that really drew me to orthodoxy was the fact that orthodox people's lives so very clearly aligned with their beliefs. Like you could see that through line. And I think that if, you know, you asked me before like about childhood, I think even back in childhood, when there was a disconnect there, it really irritated me and it still does. I don't like it when people say things that they don't behave in a way that correlates with the things that they say. And so orthodoxy was really appealing to me because I felt like it was clear that you could see the connection. 
And that was particularly true in a in an arena like Shabbos. Shabbos was very attractive to me as a concept, as it is to many people, many, you know, if you're a Baal Teshuvah or if you're a convert or even if you're even outside the Jewish community, I talk to people all the time who are not religious or are not Jewish and they get like really wistful when they're talking about Shabbos. And I get it because it's an amazing thing. It's like this precious gift and you kind of only get it through this path. So... I knew that I wasn't going to convert reform. I had been to a number of reform services because my husband's grandfather was still alive at the time. So we would go to his synagogue in New Jersey for the high holidays and I would go with them. I I could tell very early on it wasn't for me because it wasn't very often that you would be talking about God in the services. I don't want to denigrate anyone's tradition, but for me... I was craving like the transcendental and I didn't feel that there. And so then I thought, okay, well, I'll convert conservative. That's middle of the road. That makes everybody happy. And then I had a number of meetings with people where I just felt that it wasn't really a good fit. And that nagging was still there that I wanted to live a Jewish life that was as close as somebody like me could get to at least aspiring to the mitzvot. And I started to realize with no small amount of panic that a part of me wanted to convert Orthodox. And I was like, this is not good because it was going to be harder. A lot of the time there are certain expectations of one's partner and It's also going to be bad from my partner's perspective because I know that he is not particularly interested in like becoming Orthodox. So I was taking Hebrew lessons with a tutor and one day I was like getting ready to go there. We had met with a conservative rabbi that I had a bad experience with and I told my then boyfriend, now husband, I'm not going to go with this guy. And he was like, okay, that's fine. You know, whatever you want. But then I was getting ready to go to this Hebrew lesson and he was like, what are you doing? Like, why? You just said you're not going to convert with this rabbi and now you're going to this Hebrew lesson. And I was like, well, I just think that I want to convert Orthodox or not at all. Like, I was like, I can't really see doing this in a way that isn't in line with what my gut says and my values are here. And we got in a huge fight (laughs) (laughs) and he expressed trepidation about certain what he thought of as orthodox viewpoints or orthodox political allegiances. It wasn't great, but we got to the end of it. And he he basically was like, if this is what you want to do, I'll support you. But I don't remember if this this was implicit or stated. Knowing him, it was probably stated because he's very forthright about a lot of this stuff. But he was sort of like, I'll keep a kosher kitchen if that's what you want. That's fine. But like, if I go out to eat, I probably won't keep kosher. There's a limit to what I'm going to do. At the time, this felt like a very sort of personal spiritual trip, if I'm being honest. And I have always been somewhat independent. And I was like, I can do everything on my own. I don't need help. I ended up finding a rabbi who was pretty sympathetic to our cause. And I think actually in the end, his approach might be responsible for why my husband ended up becoming religious himself. Because he was pretty hands-off. And he said... I think it's a great way to live and I'm happy to pitch you on it. And my husband's sort of like business mind was like, oh, interesting that he was confident in saying, this is a great product, you should buy it. (laughs) And that that was one moment where I think he would say, looking back on it, that really made him just to pay attention a little more. You don't have kids at that point. So that's why you're able to say, I'll do this 
and you do this, I'm going to have a kosher home, but I'm going to eat out at non-kosher restaurants. And you're not realizing at the time that once you have kids, this would be like exponentially harder to have husband and wife operating differently religious-wise. So it's interesting to hear now that you're saying that your husband sort of came around to where you were headed. So how did that go with him? Like, how did you get there together? How does this whole thing play out as you get to the actual conversion? Well, you're you're totally right. I think a lot of my feelings about religion and about Judaism have changed a lot since I've had children because it's exactly as you said when it's just you by yourself or you in a partnership there's just more leeway to think of this as being something that requires change in your own life and I was much more of a kind of you do you like everybody should just pick their own path and now I have little kids and I'm like now that I have children I want to make sure that they do certain things but even more like as an orthodox Jewish parent like let's be honest that's a lot of the, you like, that's explicit. You, you explicitly want your children to do certain things. So what happened is our rabbi was lenient about certain things. I converted with his knowledge that my husband wasn't, my, obviously wasn't my husband then, wasn't doing certain things or wasn't going to do certain things. About six weeks after we got married, we moved from New York to London. And when we moved, my husband said that he thought that he wanted to be Shomer Shabbat at his new office. And I remember being a little surprised because I hadn't heard that much in this department before that. I mean, it had only been six weeks since we had been married, but but I was, I was a little surprised. Um, and he did that. He went to his new office and he said, okay, well, just so you know, like, I'm Jewish and I'm taking on more observant and like, I'm not going to be able to work Friday night, Saturday night. And I think this was challenging. He's a, he's a lawyer. He's the kind of lawyer that works a lot. Not only that, but we were in England where it's not unheard of. There's, you know, there's obviously a Jewish community in London, but it's not like New York. Being Shomer Shabbat isn't something that like everybody is aware of and kind of understands what's involved there. I think there was a lot more difficulty than there was here. So then he became Shomer Shabbat. The way that it happened, we ended up having the advantage and the disadvantage of things feeling sort of evolutionary, things being allowed to sort of develop on their own course. And I went to synagogue every Saturday when we lived in New York, more or less, for the more than a year that I kept Shabbat that he didn't. And then when we moved to London, now he keeps Shabbat too, and now we became integrated within a synagogue community where we lived. In neither in London nor in, in Brooklyn did we live in a very large Jewish community. We were involved in our synagogues, but there were fewer resources for people like us. I think that he, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he, you, you said the term Baltashuva, he's very uncomfortable with this term because he thinks that it's like too lofty for somebody like him. And then we moved... During COVID, we moved to Riverdale in the Bronx. And so now we're in a much larger Jewish community. You know, I think back a lot on like, oh, okay, however many years ago, eight years ago, we were, or nine years ago, we sat in this rabbi's office and he said, this is a great way to live. You should do this. And now, you know, we have kids who go to day school. We are just like so much more observant than I ever would have imagined but are also aware, so aware because of our backgrounds of like the gap between how observant we are and like how observant we could be or how observant other people are or that gulf is, is very prominent for us. 
I also want to give you a chance to talk about your writing and the book that's coming out, because now that I've heard your story, I can see that what you're writing about connects to the life that you've lived. So can you share a little bit about the, the upcoming book? Sure. So, I mean, upcoming, I'm not actually sure how upcoming it is, but <laughs> the draft is due in September. When it comes out, I guess will depend on how much of a disaster my editor thinks that it is. <laughs> Um, hopefully it won't be so long after that. Um, it's not only about conversion to Judaism. I have a number of subjects who convert to different religions and threaded throughout that is parts of my story and then some writing that's, um, what you might call cultural criticism that talks about the big topic in religion in 21st century America is why, what is the purpose of it when we live at what many people consider to be the peak of individual liberty, and we can have whatever we want. Why decide to do something that too many people looks regressive? You'll notice if you look at the news a lot that there's this understanding that we live in a secular culture or we live in a secularizing culture, the culture that's becoming more and more secular. And yet there are also these, these wave of articles that will, or essays or things that you'll see come up that talk about why are we all so lonely? Why are people so disconnected from the natural world? And as a person who's lived a lot of my life without religion, and as somebody who writes a lot of cultural criticism, I was like, guys, the answers to these questions are over here. Ancient wisdom has tools for a lot of this. So hopefully what I do throughout is try to encourage people to see that there is value in these other ways of thinking about life. There might be an audience for it because I do think people are hungry for that sort of stuff. I think people know that something is missing. It makes sense, by the way, that you're asking these big questions because I'm thinking back to the early part of her interview and you were already asking them at the age of eight. So it seems to be a thread throughout your life of asking these major questions that you're pondering and you think that your readers would also want to ponder, which leads me to the last question that I want to ask you. If you could go back to that eight-year-old version of yourself who kind of made this declaration of atheism or there's no God and things like that. What, what would you tell that person now that you've had all this experience and your life has changed so much? I think about this kind of thing a lot, actually. I think on the God front, I would have told her not to close doors and that what looked freeing might actually be limiting in a way that she hadn't really anticipated. And I wish that I had been given uh, a language for this kind of philosophical inquiry, if that makes sense. I think a lot about what would have happened if in my early days of being sick, if I had gone to the doctor and instead of being given this like medical framework for understanding what I was going through, instead of being given a, a medical terminology, what they would have said was like, look, you have a lot of existential angst. That's just the way that you are. But you're not the only person who's ever felt that way. I mean, these are the questions of writers and poets and theologians and prophets going all the way back thousands of years. You're part of a tradition of people who need to think about this stuff. And that doesn't mean that you have to torture yourself over it. But like, let's look at some of the great places in thought where you can see this stuff come up. I think that would have helped me a lot. And I don't think that's the thing that happens, but I wish that it had. And I wish that acquiring spiritual wisdom was a path that I knew was possible. I didn't know that that was something that somebody could do or aspire to do. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's what I would have wished for. 
it makes me realize as we're wrapping the interview why you're such a talented writer because you did such a nice job of explaining what was going on inside your head through each of the steps in your journey. I think you really took our listeners inside that journey. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday Shabbos and for being so forthcoming about your own personal journey. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.